repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 7, it's the same doctrine that Jesus preached, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so the last couple of studies, we've been looking at details of a person who is repentant. We spent the majority of our time last time looking at four aspects of repentance that we drew from verses 1 through 4 in chapter 4. First, we saw that repentance requires a return or a coming to God. We see that in verse 1. If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me. This requires a heart to be back in the presence of God according to the will of God to have that fellowship with the Lord, to stop in the direction that you're going. Maybe it's a life direction and and repent to realize you're going in the wrong way and and come to Christ. Or if you're a born-again believer, to realize you've wandered away in a wrong direction, to stop that and to come back. We've all seen, and maybe we have all even been at one point, the sorry sinner, but that's just a sinner. Although he is sorry, he continues to go forth doing what he's doing. There has to be a stopping and there has to be a returning. A person who desires for his sin to be dealt with must present themselves honestly and fully before the Lord. It can't be like Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes because God was well aware of their sin. Adam, where are you? Well, I'm hiding in the bushes so you don't see my shame and maybe you'll pass by and won't have to deal with it. Well, the problem with undealt with sin It's that which, well, it just destroys us. It destroys us in our Christian life. And as far as the unbeliever, the undealt with sin will destroy him for all eternity. We see what David did. At least we see the the heart of King David. This was based upon his repentance from the issue that he had with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4. It's just a great psalm, really the whole chapter on repentance. But he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't approach God based upon, because I'm a good guy because I can do great things, because I'm the king, or because of anything that he's able to do, he's approaching God based upon who he is. And that's how we need to approach God when we've stumbled, when we've fallen, or we've just flat out sinned, is approaching God based upon his grace and his mercy and the love that he has for us. When we come to that awareness, there's the safety within our hearts to return to him. Adam and Eve, they're experiencing sin for the first time, so they're hiding. Why? Well, they wouldn't understand the extent of the grace and the mercy and the love of God because, well, just how God is is how he's always been. But now they're realizing we've done something contrary to him and even against him. Now, we've got a benefit. We've got the word of God. And so when we fall, when we stumble, when we outwardly sin, we understand the nature of God and the necessity of returning to him based upon who he is, based upon his grace, his mercy, and his love for us. So according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And so the idea is as I come back, as I repent, Make it be as if that sin never occurred. Now, not just sweeping it under the rug, but truly having that desire for forgiveness that, as we see, the Lord forgives the, to, the, to the magnitude, it's as if you have never sinned. For I acknowledge my transgression, so he's taken possession of these things, and my sin is always before me against you. 
you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And so what David is doing is he's throwing himself completely on the mercy of God because he understands that's the only hope that he has. Because again, our salvation is not based upon works of righteousness which we have done, but on the precious blood of Jesus Christ. But when we acknowledge that, we're given glory to God. We're understanding who we are and where we are. But when we do that, when we repent, it's an act of worshiping the Lord, understanding the magnitude of who he is, the magnitude of what he's done, our inability, but also the great love with which he has for us that he is willing to forgive. How is it that we return to the Lord? The pathway back to God is paved with obedience to his word. Because as you know his word, as you do, your, do his word, that means you understand who he is and you understand what is necessary in our lives. I understand that I need that constant cleansing that the word of God has. When I, nature is revealed or my sins are revealed, even the ones where I've just missed the mark, sometimes it's just, Lord, just, just I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, Lord, and I just want to come back with right standing. I know I'm not perfect, and I know I never will be perfect, but you have known that as well. Nonetheless, you still brought me into your family. Secondly, repentance requires you to remove your abominations, to cast your sin far from you, or at least to flee from it when you can't stand against it. Verse 1, If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me, and if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. We looked at the example, it was a couple of weeks ago, I wasn't here last week, but a couple of weeks ago on how the prodigal son, when he came back to his dad, did you notice nowhere it says there was a trail of pigs following behind him? Didn't bring any of the pigs with him. Why? That was a shameful thing. We know what it represented, but also pigs in the sight of Jew was an unclean thing. And so just as silly that it would have been for the prodigal son to bring the pigs with him, are we bringing our pigs, our unclean things as we return to the Lord? It's those things, those sins, those things that have caused that gulf in our relationship with the Lord that need to be they just simply need to be left, to be taken away, to be removed from our lives. As God has chosen to not remember our sins anymore, why would we try to remind him of our sins once again? How can you keep that with you which has caused division between you even in the first place? Our holiness is the purity of godliness in us. Our sins are the impurity of the world on us. Once we are cleansed, that we would set aside all of those things which, are, well, which have drug us down, have brought us to the point, again, as Adam and Eve of hiding in the bushes. Thirdly, repentance results in a resolute life. Verse 1 again, If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me, and if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. That means you're going to be sure and you're going to be steadfast. You're going to have that assurance that your sinful nature has been dealt with, but also have the simple sins that, I shouldn't say simple sins, but the sins that drive that wedge between you and your relationship with the Lord. And there's freedom in repentance. There's freedom in knowing that you are right with God. The biggest proof of my repentance should be seen in the confidence that I have in the Lord, but also how am I am able to be used by those around me. And that was the fourth point. Repentance results 
to be ready to be used. Verse 2, And you shall swear the Lord lives in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. And it speaks of Israel being that light to the Gentiles. And then we saw verses 3 through 4, at least the first part, three effects that repentance has upon our lives. Verse 3, For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and do not sow amongst the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of the flesh of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. What does it do? It breaks up the hardened heart. The hardened repentance breaks up the hardened heart the way hardened soil is broken up so that seeds of holiness can be planted so that they will germinate and so that they will grow and bear fruit. Secondly, repentance clears out the weeds that sin is. Weeds choke out that which is beneficial and produce thorns that hurt and injure. And then thirdly, repentance works a circumcising of the heart. And again, that's a cutting away of the flesh. A cutting of the way of the flesh so that that is no longer part of me. And what I mean is the doctrine of justification so that when the Lord looks upon me, he doesn't see a man of the flesh, but he sees one of his children. Justification to be seen just as if we have never sinned. Speaks of the magnitude of the forgiveness of God that he has chosen to remember our sins and our lawless deeds no more. And keep in mind what that means when God has chosen to no longer remember. That's a supernatural forgetting, if you will, a willful forgetting, because he wants to look upon us as, again, his favored children. So, we just closed with this one thought last time. What if God's call to repentance is ignored? Well, verse 4 starts off what is going to be talked about in the next few chapters. We see the last part of verse 4. Lease my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. And so there's a warning attached to God's call to repentance. And it's, again, it's something that we need to heed today. And so as we go forth, every Bible study that we do, we have to look at this and we have to take it personally into our personal lives. But also, we need to see it corporately. We need to see it corporately as a church, a dynamic across the church, without a doubt. But how I want to look at this, because specifically, God is speaking to Jeremiah. Really, he's speaking to the nation through the prophet Jeremiah. And this was a judgment that was to come. Remember, the nation has been divided. The northern ten kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel, they've already been destroyed and basically obliterated. And that was to be a witness of what was going to happen if Judah didn't pay attention, and Judah is not paying attention. There's national calamity that is coming. And so I want to look at that in light of our nation as well. Why? Because Jesus told us to watch, especially in the end times. He told us to watch and to pay attention and to pay attention to the signs. And just as surely as God thought it necessary to bring judgment upon Judah for what they were doing and experiencing we need to consider these things as well. And so the last part of verse 4, we're going to go through it fairly rapidly, but it's going to speak of this impending judgment that is coming and give some illustrations of that. But then in chapter 5, we're going to have some specific dynamics of a nation that is going to experience judgment. Now when we say nation, we know that we're not going to receive judgment of God. 
But we are going to receive some of the repercussions of that as we are part of this nation. It's why it's, it's that which should motivate us in our witnessing and our ministering that this nation would repent. Now, a nation obviously does not repent, but we've seen the times when revival has come upon the land, and we've seen when there's been a general, a great general turning back to the Lord. And those have been times of great harvest, and those have been times of great blessings upon that nation. And so it's that which we need to be looking towards. And so we're going to be looking at it from the negative aspect. Again, the last part of uh, chapter 4 is going to speak of these, these signs, of this, or at least these pictures that God is giving of judgment as it is coming, as it is looming on the horizon, if you will. And then we'll get into some details as we go through chapter 5. So first is the proclamation of this coming judgment, and it uses some figures to illustrate. First is in 5 through 10, he speaks of a lion. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet in the land, cry, gather together and say, Assemble yourselves, and let us go to the fortified cities, set up the standard toward Zion and take refuge. Do not delay, for I will bring disaster from the north and a great destruction. So he's saying that judgment is looming. We know that this was going to be Babylon. And he's saying, prepare yourself. Do what you think that you need to do, but nonetheless, judgment is coming. Verse 7, he brings the lion into the illustration. The lion has come up from his thicket. The destroyer of the nations is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make your land desolate. Your cities will be laid waste without inhabitation. For this, clothe yourself with sackcloth. Or he's saying, mourn. Lament and wail. Wail. For the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that the heart of the king shall perish. The heart of the princes, the priests, shall be astonished, and the prophets shall wonder. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have greatly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, You shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches to the heart. Well, again, you've got this illustration of a lion, speaking of the judgment that is going to come, and the idea is there's this great hurt that is out there, and you don't really know where it's at, and you don't really know when it's going to strike. It'd be kind of like here. Here we are at the Safari Business Park, every Chapel, Ontario, and if I told you there's a lion that has been let loose in the parking lot, it's a full-grown lion, hasn't eaten in a while, And, well, one of you, as you step out of this place tonight, are going to be lion chow. Now, we don't know where it's at. We don't know when it's going to strike. And so the idea is, is there's just this insurity of something disastrous that is coming. Something that is coming down the trail and not really knowing when it's going to happen. You can see in verse 10, it's even gotten the heart of the prophet. Then I said, and this is Jeremiah, Oh Lord God, surely you have greatly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, You shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches to the heart. Because it was common of that day, because God was not only speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, but other prophets, and so this message was going out to the kings and the priests. The problem is they were ignoring it, and they were also setting up for themselves false prophets these false prophets that were saying that you don't have to worry about the judgment to come, that God is going to deliver. But that was a false message because God, and we know how it played out, but also this is serious because God warns his people before his people will be judged. And so to ignore the message or to dilute the message, they do so at their own detriment. Matter of fact, there were serious repercussions for these false prophets. 
We have false prophets today. A, a false prophet, basically, in this context, is anybody who stands at a pulpit and does not warn the people that are there of the judgment to come. That we have this responsibility that although God is gracious and loving, he's also a God of judgment and will judge those who fail to repent. Now, as you're talking in any large crowd, more than likely the vast majority of them are people who need to repent. And if they don't repent, they're going to receive judgment. And we need to see the responsibility that we have. And when I say we, I say, mean we as pastors, but also I mean we as a congregation to go out and to tell those who are lost that there is the reality of judgment that is coming. It's as a lion that has left its place in the jungle and has come into a populated area. Matter of fact, I just read in the newspaper, just kind of came to me, it was somewhere local. I don't know if it was in San Bernardino, but the police got a call and there was a mountain lion that was wandering through a, a neighborhood and it caused a lot of dissension, if you can imagine, in the neighborhood. And when the police came out, they saw the lion and it started coming after them and they had to kill it. And that's the idea here is, can you imagine if there was a mountain lion in your neighborhood? Are you going to let the dog out at night? Are you going to allow your little children, if you have any, to go out at night? No, you're, you're probably not going to go out at night yourself. Dear, can you take the trash out? You take the trash out. I'm not going out there. I don't do that, but I'm just saying. <laughs> Secondly, we see a tempest or a storm, verses 11 through 13. At that time, it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a dry wind of the desolate heights blows in the wilderness towards the daughter of my people, not to fan or to cleanse. A wind too strong for these will come for me. Now I will also speak judgment against them. Behold, he shall come up like clouds and his chariots like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are plundered. Well, we can relate to this because every time there's a hurricane on the horizon, you kind of get the countdown that it's coming. Right now, the winds are blowing at 150 miles an hour. It'd probably be reduced, but then they'll go. And so you're not really knowing exactly what you're getting, but you know that this is going to be a storm and it is going to wreak havoc as we see it happen multiple times so far this past hurricane season. The wind that is blowing is what is referred to in the scriptures as an east wind. It would be a wind that would come over the desert. And so the idea was is that it would be a strong wind, but it would be a hot wind. And the east wind is always referred to as a wind of judgment. And so it's this wind that is coming. And the thing about that coming wind is, how do you stop it? How do you stop a hurricane? You can't stop a hurricane. My wife lived in Oklahoma for the vast majority of her life. There were tornadoes there. You can't stop the tornadoes. Matter of fact, tornadoes, you do get a little bit of a warning, but not much. But the reason they give you a warning is to hunker down because you're just not going to be able to stand against them. We went back one year. It was right after a tornado, and they bounced. It bounced through town, and it was just amazing. It just bounced, and it hit a house and destroyed a house, and actually I think it killed two people. It went up in the air, bounced somewhere else, and caused destruction. And so the idea is, is that this judgment that is coming is just as sure as the hurricane or the tornado or in the context here, that east wind. United States of America, we need to pay attention. Verses 14 through 18 speaks of the watchers. The watchers, think of along the lines of a prison guard. 
O Jerusalem, wash your heart from the wickedness that you may be saved. How long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims from the affliction of Mount Ephraim. More than likely, this is the, just speaking of the northern kingdom and the judgment that has come that is witnessing. See what happened to us? This is going to happen to you. Make mention to the nations, yes, proclaim against Jerusalem that watchers come from a far country and raise their voice against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field, they are against her all around because she has been rebellious against me, says the Lord. Your ways and your doings have procured these things for you. This is your wickedness because it is bitter, because it reaches to your heart. The idea is is this judgment that comes as God brings Babylon. They are going to be their prison guards. They're going to be watching over them. Their freedom is going to be lost, and they're going to understand. I, I, I personally have never been to jail, but I can just imagine as you're sitting in jail, you got a lot of time to think. And I imagine you'd be thinking a lot on your crime, whatever it is that puts you there. It's my understanding. I think Pearlie even told me that everybody in jail is innocent, at least outwardly. But when you're sitting there with your thoughts and you know reality that you are deserving of your punishment, that's the idea here. And then we have the description of the coming judgment, at least the magnitude of the coming judgment. Verses 19 through 22, it's going to be terrifying. Oh, my soul, my soul, I am pained in my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because you have heard, oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Destruction upon destruction, he's cried, for the whole land is plundered. Suddenly my tents are plundered and my curtains in a moment. How long will I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. They have not known me. They are silly children. They have no understanding. They are wise to do, they are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. They're, they're very well trained to do evil, but as far as the things of the Lord, they've forsaken that. And so what he's speaking of is the terrifying feeling that you would have in your, it would deep within your heart as you hear that the army is at the door. I can imagine, in, you know, in, in this age of information and war nowadays, you kind of get a play-by-play you know, account of what's going on. And, and I, I just remember in one of the cities in... Um, I think it was Yugoslavia when they were having their civil war. There was, you know, the army coming and the army coming and the army coming and this this town was being surrounded and as they finally came into the town, it was one of the towns where they abused the women and they, they killed almost all the men, if not all of the men. And the idea here is, is that feeling of here comes that judgment. They're there, they're at the very doors and it's coming upon us. It's that which... We've only gotten little tastes of Pearl Harbor, nine one one, and then some of the terrorist things that have happened here. Very few things, and, and for the most part, you know, we had the shootings over there in San Bernardino, but for the most part, we're kind of insulated from that so far. But what happens when those things, when we are truly threatened? The people that were just dealing with fires. The fire is coming. The fire is coming. You know, we have to pack up. We have to get out. And I'm sure a lot of those people never thought that that would happen to them. You know, it's usually a common thing that you hear. But the reality is, is that it's at the door. And we were watching. We're seeing the signs of the time. And as we see the signs of the time, the rapture of the church sure seems like it's going to be coming down the pike 
really quickly, we know suddenly, and when that happens, then there's going to be great upheaval in this world. Secondly, we see that this judgment is going to be devastating. Verses 23 through 26, I behold the earth, and indeed it was without form and void, and the heavens, they had no light. And so he's using this reference back to Genesis of how devastating this judgment is going to be. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. This is a judgment that is definitely coming from God. Talked about it with the children's ministers before service today. When we study the book of Revelation, what we have seen, and I'm constantly reminded of the judgments that are coming upon the people. Now, the the tribulation, that word literally means squeezing. And that's squeezing people so that they would come to repentance. Because at the time of the rapture of the church, right after that happens, there's no unbelievers left on earth. So everybody on earth needs to repent. Now, I believe because of our witness or whoever's witness is around at the time, people will instantly realize the truthfulness of the gospel and there will be people who repent and get saved. But there's going to be people that are hard-hearted. And there's going to be those that God turns up the heat, if you will, the intensity of the tribulation. And the purpose isn't for punishment because that's hell. That's coming further on down the line. But he's doing that so that they would turn from their evil ways and they would turn to God and repent. But the fact of the matter is people would so like to... We, we, we just don't give God his due sometimes. And, you know, and John says, you know, I, I've seen out of this bottomless pit locusts came up. Well, the locusts have been described as helicopters and other man-made things or stars falling from heaven or really rockets and all of that. I don't think so. I, I think that's God's creation. Now, I don't think those are really locusts. They're demons that are released from that pit. But nonetheless, this is God who is, who, who is tweaking and squeezing for people coming to a saving knowledge of themselves. This isn't just what man is doing to himself. This is what God is doing to man. And we need to see the reality that God does work in the lives of man and he uses his creation to achieve his will. And that's the idea here. And then verses 27 through 31, we see the inevitable. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be desolate. Yet I will not make a full end for this For this shall the earth mourn, and the heavens above be black, because I have spoken, I have purposed, and will not relent, nor will I turn back from it. The whole city shall flee from the noise of the horsemen and the bowmen. They shall go into thickets and to climb up on the rocks. Every city shall be forsaken, and not a man shall dwell in it. So we see the thoroughness of what is happening here in this judgment that is coming upon Jerusalem. Verse 30, and when you are plundered, it's going to happen, you notice the surety of it's going to happen. And when you are plundered, what will you do? Though you clothe yourself with crimson, though you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, though you enlarge your eyes with paint, in vain you will make yourself fair. Your lovers will despise you, they will seek your life. 
For I have heard a voice as of a woman in labor, the anguish of her who brings forth her first child. The voice of the daughter of Zion bewailing herself, she spreads her hand saying, Woe is me now, for my soul is weary because of the murderers. He's using this example of a woman giving birth. It's at that moment when a woman's given birth that you can't go back. (laughs) It's going to happen and you just pretty much got to go with it at that point. That's just my observation, never experienced it personally. But the judgment, they're going to realize it's too late. The judgment is here, and the judgment is upon them. Now, you can look at that and say, well, how is that fair? But God's right here. He's given them warning. We've been told, and God has warned us. And I pray that all of us have heard, and we have repented, and we have come to Christ. It's not appointed for us for judgment, but it's the message that we do have for this world. And so many times, you know, we, 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 we soften the message of judgment that is going to come upon people. We can't do that. Why can we not do that? Because nowhere in the Bible does that, when God has the opportunity, does he soften the message? There's some pretty direct things here, some pretty hard things. And so we need to be mindful of that simply because God is mindful of that. So the question needs to be asked, why was repentance necessary? What is the cause of the judgment to come? <clears throat> Not only is this a warning to Judah, but this is a warning to all nations throughout history. And again, I want to look at it in light of, it's a warning to the United States of America. And, and we cannot allow that to go past. Now again, we're children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not appointed for us for judgment but it should motivate us. Because of the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We preach the gospel to to men and women. And it's because of that terror, because of the things that we've just talked about, there could be people, I mean, if, if the rapture happened tonight, God would be perfectly justified based upon his word. You know, just all that we're seeing going across the world. I'm not making a prediction or anything like that. I'm just saying God would be justified. If that's the case, you know people who are going to be going through the tribulation. And you know people, regardless of who are going to stand before God in terror, they're going to stand before God in judgment. And so because of that, we need to consider these things, and we need to be motivated by these things. Not motivated to Christ so much, but motivated for Christ to be used in the, in the lives of those who will be, be receiving these judgments. So, Chapter 5, what we're going to look at is six reasons why judgment was necessary upon this southern kingdom, upon Judah. First, judgment was necessary because of moral corruption. Verses 1 through 6. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know and seek in her open places. If you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. Though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. O Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock, and they have refused to return. Therefore, I said, surely these are poor. They are foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. I will go to the great men and to speak to them, for they have known the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God, but these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Therefore, 
A lion from the forest shall slay them. A wolf of the desert shall destroy them. A leopard will watch over their cities. Everyone who goes out from there shall be torn in pieces. Because of their transgressions are many, because their transgressions are many, and their backslidings have increased. And so we see the corruption in verses 1 through 3 speaks of the corruption in man's dealings with one another. They come to a point when there's no moral integrity of their word. Their word or their promises mean absolutely nothing. They're just doing that or just saying that so that they can get an advantage. There's no integrity of a person's word any longer. Lying and falsities have been common in such a uh, society. We saw in our studies in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy that truth was to be the cornerstone of the legal system, business dealings, and a stability of society. I mean, just think of a truth. And you can even take God out of the equation. Just to remove God out of the equation, just think of how much better and more desirous a society would be that was just based upon people telling and doing the truth. And that was God's desire for his people, but now they've come to that place where they have forsaken truth. They have forsaken um, integrity in their speech. Zechariah chapter 5, verse 4, I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. Without the truth, without the truth, relationships crumble. Without the truth, our whole legal system falls apart. I mean, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, so help you God? I mean, that was the swearing in so that that person that was on the stand, people would know that they're at least believe that they're getting truth from that person so that a legal decision, a binding decision can come to pass. Because God values his word, we in turn are to value ours. In verses 4 through 6, we see another earmark of an immoral society. Just as they have not valued their word, they also have no value for God's word as well. At the founding of our nation, the word of God, it was valued. At the founding of Israel, the word of God, it was valued. God was introducing himself in the book of Exodus. Again, it's what your children are even starting on tonight. And so that people would learn to rely upon God's word. Now, if you had to rely upon somebody's word for your life, wouldn't you want it to be somebody who was truthful? Somebody who honored their word? Well, as God honors his word, we see the, the, the importance that he play, uh, places upon that. And because he honors his word, we need to be an honorable people in his sight as well. In 2 Timothy, we're told in chapter 2, verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And because of this, what we see in... in, in them not having any value on their word or value on God's word, what were they forsaking in that? They were forsaking what Christ considered to be the two greatest commandments. They weren't loving God because they had no value in his word. And they weren't loving one another because there was no value in their word. And so the whole of society was affected. Next, secondly, judgment. It became necessary because of sexual impurity. Verses, <clears throat> excuse me, verses 7 through 9. <clears throat> 
How shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those who are not gods. Then I have fed them to the full. They have committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlots' houses. They were like a well-fed lusty stallions, every one neighed after his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? And you see all these things that had happened, and you look at the dynamic of our country. How could God not judge it? How could God not judge it? As you see, I, just before I came out, they were doing raids across the country on trafficking, human trafficking. The average age of the girls that they, they delivered from that was 15 years old. They had one that the parents sold their two kids, a five-year-old and a three-month-old, for $600 to somebody for sexual purposes. Thank God that person had integrity enough to call the police. But this is going on, it's going on in our own backyard. And again, this is a reality that we see in the news today, and whether you're on the left or whether you're on the right, you still see the reality of the sexual abuse that goes on in this country. And I almost thought it was humorous if it wasn't so sad with this Henry Weinstein and how Hollywood is so up in arms. Well, they're the biggest perpetuators of this kind of things in the movies that they make. And again, they just don't see the reality of it all. But what that shows me is the reality of Satan in it all. And again, this is where God is going to... Well, it's one of the earmarks of a nation that God brings judgment to. As sexual immorality becomes a part of their worshiping lives because it is speaking of that. And, and temple prostitutes and so much, it soon becomes part of their daily lives. Why? Because you become like that which you worship. You worship Jesus Christ, you'll become Christ-like. You worship the world, and you'll become more like the world. Hebrews 13.4, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed or the sexual relationship undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, it says, God will judge. Thirdly, judgment became necessary simply because of unbelief, verses 10 through 18. Go up on her walls and destroy, but do not make a complete end. Take away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me, says the Lord. They have lied about the Lord and said, It is not he, neither will evil come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. And the prophets become wind, for the word is not in them, thus it shall be done to them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, because you speak this word, behold, I will make my words in your mouth fire, and this people wood, and it shall devour them. Behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, says the Lord. It is a mighty nation, it is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb, and they are all mighty men, and they shall eat up your harvest and your bread, which your sons and daughters should eat. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. They shall destroy your fortified cities in which you trust with the sword. Nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a complete end to you, because we know that God has a future and a hope to Israel. We'll see that later on in the book of Jeremiah. But as for that day, the sword is coming, and God's going to do a pruning. Now, 
when we hear, you know, when ISIS, ISIS was going on and their rampages and all, and as they were coming up against a city and it seems like those cities would fall, can you imagine being part of that city? Can you imagine after hearing about what they have done in other cities to know that that judgment is coming upon you? Now, if you had an opportunity just to simply repent and to seek God out, and and it could all go away, you'd think you would do it. Well, they've had that same opportunity because, again, the southern kingdom, they've seen what happened to the northern kingdom. Assyria went in there, destroyed them, obliterated them. Assyria was a cruel people. And then they hauled off everybody out of the land and replaced them with their own people. And God is giving this warning to Judah as well that this is coming down the pike if you don't repent, if you don't get right with me. But the problem is the people didn't believe it and they set up for themselves false prophets that would not preach it. And again, it's what we do in this country today. We don't want to hear about judgment. We don't want to hear about these things. They don't want to hear about the word of God. And so they place people behind the pulpits that don't speak these things, that don't preach these things, And as they don't, they do the people a great disservice. Because if you saw somebody walking down the street and a car was coming towards them, that the least you would do was to shout out and to warn them, hey, look out. I mean, it's the only decent thing to do. Can you imagine somebody saw something like that and didn't say anything? You wonder what's wrong with them. Well, it's the same thing in this context. We must speak out. We must warn people. Fourthly, judgment became necessary because of a willful ignorance. They just simply chose to ignore it. Verses 19 through 24. And it will be when you say, Why does the Lord our God do all these things to us? Then you shall answer them, Just as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve aliens in a land that is not yours. Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Hear this now, O foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and see not, and who have ears and hear not. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble in my presence, who have placed the sand as the bound of the sea, and by perpetual decree that it cannot pass beyond it? And though its waves toss to and fro, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. But this people has defiant has a defiant and rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed. They do not say in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain both from the former and the latter in its season. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Same things are going on as they always have. And, and, and Jeremiah was going to be greatly persecuted because of the message that he gave. Why? Because the people didn't want to hear reality. Now, we've got the same message, basically. They need to repent because judgment is going to come. Well, part of the problem here is is that Judah determined that they wanted to just simply stay ignorant of these things. But the problem is that they, they weren't. And it's the same thing with the message that we preach. We know what does the Holy Spirit do through the message that we preach, John 16. It convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so as they hear the message, they're well aware of the judgment, but they just don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it because they don't want to change. Fifthly, judgment became necessary because of social injustice. Verse 25 through um, 26, no, 25 through 29. For your iniquities have turned these things away and your sins have withheld good from you. For among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares, and they set a trap, and they catch men. As a cage is full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and grow rich. 
They have grown fat and are sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked, yet they do not plead the cause and the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper, and the right of the needy they do not defend. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I, shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? The idea here is this is a nation where the strong and wealthy, they're prospering off the needy and the weak. They're taking advantage of these people rather than providing for these people. Now again, in Exodus, God is introducing himself to his people so that they would understand the God that they serve. But also he gave the law so that they would understand what God expected of them. And one of my favorite verses, it just spoke to me when we were studying the book of Exodus so many years ago, is in Exodus 22, verses 22 through 24. When given the opportunity to provide for somebody that's in need, whatever it might be, something that is definitely legitimate, my heart always goes back to this, and there needs to be a fear of the Lord. There needs to be a fear of the Lord when we're confronted, that we would never grow hard-hearted in the face of the needy. Now, again, if it's somebody who's not working, the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. If it's somebody who's buying drugs, that's not what we provide for. But nonetheless, if there's somebody that has a legitimate need, because again, in Exodus 22, verses 22 through 24, God told Moses, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Now, those were considered to be the most helpless and vulnerable of a society. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way, and they cry out, cry at all out to me and they cry at all to me I shall surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless so he's saying because you got this hard-hearted hard-heartedness see you've got this widow and you have this fatherless child and you see the despair that they're in and apparently this is a person that has been provided for and his family's doing okay He says, if you don't provide for them, I'm going to turn your wife into a widow. I'm going to turn your child into the fatherless. And the predicament that they're in, your family is going to be in. And so you see what God, the importance that God has placed upon this. Well, this has become a nation, this particular Judah here has become a nation of social injustice. Now, we live in in the same place. We live in a same place that this nation today has really become unjust when it comes to social issues. And just giving people stuff doesn't really provide for them. What, what happened to teaching and training? What happened to giving people a job? Because it also gives them reason and purpose. Because to work is biblical. And, and there, there's just something good and there's just something satisfying about that and to be able to provide. We have all, we call them this social programs and whatnot, but really what they're doing is they're doing something just as bad as what that one person in Exodus was doing. We're not really providing for these people, we're just causing these people to become dependent. And the idea is to become dependent on a party so that party can continue to prevail in politics rather than really doing, digging into a society and what is good for the people. I speak against the left, but I speak against the right as well. It's common on both sides. Lastly, and we'll close with this, judgment became necessary because of corrupt leaders. Verses 30 through 31. An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule by their own power, and my people love to have it so. 
but what will you do in the end? You set up for yourself these false prophets that speak what it is that you want to hear. You have these priests, these religious rulers who rule by their own power and not the power of God. And the people love to have it so because it makes their life comfortable here on earth, because there's no conviction here on earth. But there's a problem. What will you do in the end? Because at some point, that judgment, it's going to come bursting down upon you. It's like a dam that bursts. And just in an instant like that, judgment comes. And it's going to happen. It's going to happen here. And it's going to happen in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, when we least expect it. I shouldn't say we, but when it's least expected. What are we to do? What is man to do? There needs to be a real repentance. Approaching God according to his mercy, confessing sin, appealing for a cleansing, and desiring an inward renewal. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, that you have given us this pattern, that you have shown us your will. And Lord, kind of speaking to the choir tonight, but sometimes the choir needs to be motivated, and that I pray that we are a people who have repented and have come into your family. But Lord, again, and just as surely as that man standing on the side watching somebody who's about to get hit by a car, that's us. And we have a responsibility to cry out. Not only do we have the responsibility, but we also, Lord, have you who will empower us to do so. And so, Father, I just pray that we would be a people who are found faithful in these things. As we look at this judgment, I pray that we would see the reality of the judgment that seemingly is coming upon this nation. And once again, that that would be our motivation. And so, Father, we just thank you for tonight. I pray for those who come out that you would go before them, that you would bless them the remainder of this week. That, God, we would honor you in all that we do, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please? We have our Hosanna night that is coming up. It's actually going to be a week from Tuesday. And then after that is going to be November. And after November is December and Christmas already. It's going fast. But anyway, we're having our Hosanna night, our outreach to the children of our community. After service, Sean announced it at 11.15, about 15, 20 minutes after service is over. Uh, Ray Gonzalez is going to have a little bit of a meeting in the high school room just about our door hangers and just how to get out there and, and just to invite people to that because the gospel is going to go out that night. And so it would be a, a blessing that if we were able to get more people to come alongside to work some of the booths and just to kind of supervise and oversee just so we're able to provide that safe environment that night. God bless you guys. Have a pleasant evening. Mm-hmm.